Good morning. It's nice to see you all again. Well, while most of you were enjoying a well-earned rest um, over the break, a few of us travelled uh, to Jerusalem for an international gathering of Anglicans who want to stand for biblical truth, stand with those who are suffering for biblical truth and stand up to those who are compromising biblical truth. It's an astonishing time, actually. 2,000 people gathered in the International Convention Centre in Jerusalem from more than 40 different countries, all united because what mattered most to each one is the will of God made known to us in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were moments of profound sadness as we heard about how some of our brothers and sisters have been treated, the pressure they're under, the losses they've sustained, the personal abuse and the lies that they've endured. Sometimes it was sadness tinged with indignation because they're suffering those things at the hands of people who have taken oaths to protect them and to care for them in the gospel. We heard of a lightning fast departure from our common Christian heritage in nation after nation in the West. We heard of Christian leadership that has failed catastrophically in its charge to guard the gospel and proclaim it to all the world. But there were also times of extraordinary joy as we stood together shoulder to shoulder crying out, we shall proclaim Christ faithfully to the nations. Now, carefully choreographed attempts to derail the conference by the Anglican Communion Office in London were made throughout the week. Uh, videos were released each day of the week with people claiming that what matters to ordinary Anglicans all over the world is their connection to the Archbishop of Canterbury, as if. <laughs> An announcement uh, was made that very week that £750,000 had been made available to ensure that bishops from all over the world could come and meet with the Archbishop of Canterbury at the Lambeth Conference in 2020. Well, most of those who were at GAFCON had to pay their own way. So it was a very interesting week, and uh, if you want to know more, there's actually a stack of interviews on the GAFCON website, and you can even find the conference statement, the letter to the churches there as well, and it's worth a look. Well, as we came in to land at Tel Aviv, if we had come in during the daylight hours, I actually fronted up at about three o'clock in the morning, so saw nothing. Um, <laughs> if we'd come in during daylight, we would have had a wonderful view of the Promised Land. We would have seen the Dome of the Rock, the Mount of Olives, the Jordan River, the farms, the roads, the whole lot. Modern-day Israel would have been laid out before us. And you get a lot to see. You get to see a lot that way. But just as thrilling, more so really, is getting on the ground and walking through the streets of the old city. You see things a little differently then. You get to take time over the detail. You get to notice the things you just could not notice from the air. Now, in an oddly similar way, uh, we've made that same switch over the past few weeks in uh, Friday Chapel. You remember uh, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel, section after section, for some time. But a few weeks ago, we stopped and went back to take a closer, slower, more detailed look at the words we find in Matthew 6, the pattern of prayer which Jesus provided for his disciples, the Lord's Prayer. 
It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon Jesus delivered to those who came to him after he'd been preaching the gospel of the kingdom throughout Galilee. It's part of that section within the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus contrasts the flashy, ostentatious, self-serving piety of the Pharisees with real righteous living. Not trumpeting your gift-giving, but giving in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Not praying to draw attention to yourself by positioning yourself in the most conspicuous places or praying in great lengths or with impressive religious vocabulary, but praying to your Father who sees in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And he'll go on to speak about fasting inconspicuously so that no one even knows that you're fasting. But before he does, he gives his disciples and those others who are listening in a pattern for prayer. Our Father in heaven. The prayer is addressed to our Father in heaven and we'll need to come back to that again in a few moments. It's very important. But after that initial address, the first three petitions are directed to God and his agenda. That in itself is something that we should not miss. The prayer starts with a concern for God's name, God's kingdom and for God's will. The first three petitions of the model for all our prayers are about what God is and what God is on about in the world. Now, isn't that a stinging rebuke to our prayers? It is to mine. Of course, we're encouraged to pray to God about the things that matter most to us. Of course, that way of expressing our dependence upon God, asking, is itself a fruit of faith. Later in this very sermon, Jesus will encourage his disciples to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He'll remind them that if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? There's nothing wrong with bringing your request to God. Quite the opposite, actually. But this prayer, as I said, the model for all our prayers begins with God and the things that concern him. It's a sharp challenge to our persistent self-centeredness. No matter how many times we hear, no matter how many times we preach that life is not all about me, sometimes our prayers can sound like it is all about me after all. Even our praise sometimes becomes all about how God makes me feel, not who he actually is. But this prayer begins, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The focus is first and foremost on God, who he is, what he has planned from the beginning, what he's doing now in the lead up to that day. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These three petitions have the priority in this prayer. And it's the third of them, the cry that God's will might be done here in this world at this time that we come to this morning. And I want to look at it with you as the answer to three questions. 
What is the will that must be done as it is uh, on earth as it is in heaven? Whose will must be done on earth as it is in heaven? And how is his will done on earth as it is in heaven? But before we do that, let's ask God to guide our thinking and our response to his word, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know all that has gone on for us today so far. You know the things that fill our minds and our hearts. Uh, We pray that you might direct our attention to your word now. We pray, Father, that you might speak to each one of us from your word. We pray that the truth of your word might capture our imaginations, our hearts and our delight, and that we might be your faithful people living in response to it as you would have us do. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, what is the will that must be done on earth as it is in heaven? When the Bible and Christians through the ages speak about the will of God, they often speak of it in two ways. First, God's secret will, his his counsel, if you like, by which he controls and directs all things. Paul wrote to the Ephesians about how we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God doesn't explain all that he's doing in the world, but we know that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing gets in the way of that will. It's this will that John says abides forever in 1 John 2. When understood in this sense, no one can resist his will. Nothing frustrates his purpose. He will triumph, and there's not the slightest doubt about that. What he planned at the beginning will be realised. All things will be brought together under Christ. Nothing can stop that from being accomplished. It is the unstoppable, irresistible will of God. To stand in opposition to this will is futile and it can only lead to confusion and destruction, as Calvin put it. You might stand against God's plan, as Joseph's brothers did, selling him into slavery and derailing his preposterous dreams, but in the end your stand is futile and Joseph's brothers did in the end bow down before him. You meant it for evil, he will tell them, but God meant it for good. The Pharisees and Jewish leaders might stand in the way of Jesus bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Pilate might stand against Jesus' claim to be a king and the son of God, yet their combined opposition just provided the means for the claim to be realised and his identity to be made known. The man who prayed, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, entered paradise that day with the king he recognised on the cross beside him. And on the third day, the crucified king was declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The will of God in this sense is being done. It is always being done. Oh, it might not look like it. We might not recognise how individual events fit into that will. We might still stumble over hidden providences In fact, it might look to us as if God's plan and will are being overturned at point after point. 
but that is not and can never be the case. It might look like the world is victorious in one battle after another. The world is the victor and the gospel is trodden underfoot, but that is merely an illusion. After all, the one who was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men was in reality delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereign, directing, ruling will. And there are many cases in the Old and New Testaments where this is the sense in which we are to understand, talk about God's will. We'll see in a few moments why it's always good, always generous, always loving, even when we cannot understand how. But the point is, it is being done now on earth as it is in heaven. What God intends... What God determines is always accomplished. But there's another way of talking about God's will. This is his will made known, his will reflecting his character, the will to which we are called to be conformed. It's the will he's made known in his holy, righteous and good law. It's the will he's made known through Jesus in this very Sermon on the Mount. Calvin called it God's good pleasure, his express will. And it is this good and perfect will that was resisted and rejected in the garden. It is this good and perfect will that was excluded in the dreadful history of the children of Abraham. It is this will of God that was repudiated by Israel's religious leadership in the first century, showing themselves to be children of the devil rather than children of God. The will of God, like everything else about God, is not divided. God does not have two wills. But the will of God has these two dimensions, sovereignly directing all things to the loving purpose he's prepared for them and the call to obedience and conformity to his character expressed in his word. In the sovereign sense, God's will is full and rich and good and will undoubtedly accomplish what God has determined from the beginning. In the moral sense, his will is the right ordering of his creatures to his character and his purpose. The valuing of life the way he values life guarding faithfulness as he guards faithfulness, the generous love which accords with his love and grace and mercy, a commitment to truth because he is so heavily invested in truth. That right ordering exists now in heaven. There is no resistance to it, no avoidance, no belittling of it in heaven. In heaven, his will is done perfectly. It's done always, and it's done now. It is fully accomplished, yet not on earth. Not yet. Not in this sense. And the reason is that realising this will, conforming to this will, does not come easy to us, does it? Adam and Eve heard the will of God from the mouth of God, no less. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they asserted their own will in its place. When she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And from that point on, there is no natural obedience. Our own will seems so very important, so very more important than God's will. Yet at every point where we assert our will against the express will of God, his summons, his commands, his invitation to life, his way under his rule, at every point at which we prefer our own will, we harm ourselves. Friends, it's the will of God in this second sense, the good pleasure of God, the express will of God, the moral will of God, that is to the fore when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the will of God in this second sense that is so openly repudiated today, not only by individuals, but by political structures and entire cultures. It's our will, or better, my will, which must prevail in every context in which we find ourselves. And the inevitable consequence of my will clashing with your will seems to take people by surprise. But it is inevitable because neither your will nor mine was ever meant to be ultimate. So whose will is? Secondly, whose will must be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, the your in your will be done is quite obviously our Father in heaven. When we think and speak about the will of God, we mustn't think or speak about him as if he were some kind of autocratic despot determined to impose himself upon the everyday lives of his subjects. There have been far too many in human history who abused the authority they've been given to insist that everything must be done their way or there will be dire consequences. And tragically, friends, horrendously, we can't just speak of this kind of abuse as the characteristic of remote historic figures, can we? Families are torn apart by this kind of behaviour in this city and in our churches. Churches are torn apart by behaviour like this. Churches in our city, Anglican churches, independent churches. But God is not like that. And his will is not like that. Neither is God's will like the impersonal fate of the Stoics or the equally impersonal will of Allah, to which Muslims must simply submit. But rather, God's will is the will of our Heavenly Father, the one who is thoroughly and consistently committed to us, who demonstrated the extent of his love in the mission of his Son, and in the gift of his spirit. It is the God who loved us enough to stand at the very heart of our resistance and refusal of him, at the point at which human hostility towards him was most intense, and there give himself for us. He's the one whose will we're talking about when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The God who wills, you see, is the God who loves, the God who knows, the God who always and effectively acts for our lasting welfare. He knows who we are. He knows what our limitations are. He knows what we need. We keep making mistakes when we assert our own will, 
make our decisions, fashion our environment and seek to manage our own lives, I make mistakes. We get things wrong. Our selfishness distorts what we want and how we think we can get it. Yet God makes no such mistakes and his will is always right and it is always true and it is always good. As one modern writer puts it, his perfect will is tied to his perfect knowledge, his perfect love and his perfect power. Which is why when we do not understand or cannot see the good, when the will of God in either sense his sovereign purpose leading all things in the light and in the darkness to the conclusion he's prepared for them, or his expressed desire for how we should live in response to his grace, when the will of God makes little sense to us, we can still trust him and we can still pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven. The important thing to remember is whose will we're talking about. It's the will of the Father who sought you out, who called you to himself, the Father who rescued you and is determined to prepare you for the joy of eternity with him, the Father who will always finish what he begins and who is the debtor to no one. It is his will that we want to see done on earth as it is in heaven. So finally, how? is his will done on earth as it is in heaven. The same Jesus who gave these words prayed them, at least the sense of them, himself, on the night before he died. He had, of course, all through his life insisted that he came to do his father's will. So in John 4, Jesus told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was what sustained him. That was what nourished him. To do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. A few chapters later in John 6, Jesus spoke to the crowd on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. All that the Father gives me will come to me, he said, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, Jesus came to do his Father's will. That's an important summary of his ministry. There's an essential unity in the mission of Jesus and the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was that Jesus would save those who were given to him. He was to fully and finally rescue them, to keep them safe and raise them up on the last day, make known to them the character and purpose of the one and only God, the God who made them and called them to be his. Which is an important part of the backdrop to Jesus' own praying of the third petition of the Lord's Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, Jesus prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's clear even when 
he was faced with the horror of what was about to happen to him. The, the physical horror, yes, but even more so the spiritual horror. The beloved son, who'd never ceased to be the beloved son, facing the father as judge as he bears the sin of the whole world. When faced with all that, what still matters most to him is to do the will of the one who sent him. Not my will, but yours be done. He knew exactly what he was praying. He knew what it would mean in all its stark horror and brutality. But he knew that the Father could be trusted. And he was entirely united with the Father in this project. There is a sense in which Jesus himself is the answer to the petition of this prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and in all of universal history. There has only been one who could do that. And within 24 hours he would cry out, it is finished. The perfect plan of salvation and perfect moral conformity to God's character and purpose find their fulfilment in Jesus. In him God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, without cavil or protest or resistance. Not my will but yours be done. And yet, friends, we can't leave it there, can we? Simply because Jesus himself won't let us leave it there. Several times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus spoke of his disciples' obedience to the will of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said in Matthew 7. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, he declared in Matthew 12. Doing the will of God, taking seriously what God has made known about his purposes, trusting him at the points in which we do not know where these purposes are going or how exactly they're being worked out, but also being conformed to the character of God, being aligned to his mercy and grace and its consequences for the way in which we live beside each other in this world. That's how God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just something remote, you see. It's not just something on the global scale. It's not just something that happened long ago. It's not some abstract or general principle. It touches us, each one of us and our lives. As we trust and obey the word he's given us, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But friends, remember this is a prayer. It's a petition addressed to God. Because in the end, without the work of God in us and through us, unless he does it in the end, it will not happen on earth as it is in heaven. Voices will continue to be raised against the rule of God, the character of God and the word of God and our own predisposition to assert our own will rather than joyfully embrace his will continues as well. Of course, that's all futile in the end. God's will will be done in the end. But our only hope that his will will be done now in our lives and on the larger scale rests with him. And that's why we pray, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Jesus himself embodies all that's meant in this petition. Yet he calls on his disciples to share his same attitude toward the will of God that's been made known to us. So forget the babbling and social positioning of the Pharisees when it comes to prayer. Jesus told those who gathered on the mountain with him that day. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.